Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. I want to welcome everyone back as we continue our study from last week. And let me kind of bring everyone up to speed. I know some of you weren't with us last week. Uh, let me bring us all up to speed of what we've been discussing. If you have any comments or questions, of course, feel free to interject at any point in time. But we're looking at the parable of the sower. And I brought this into this particular study because I think it's related. The, the question that we've been asking is, what is the gospel? The answer that we've all hopefully know well now is that it's Jesus is Lord. And we discussed the fact that that is something that we will have to grapple with what it means and applying that to our life on a daily basis for the rest of our lives. Because there's, it's just a, there's a depth to the confession of Jesus as Lord that we have to constantly reckon with. What does that mean? Follow me and playing that out in our, in our own lives and the difficulties that happen with that. And what does that look like? And we want to continue to add to that. So in a few studies we'll do, you know, what is it, what is a disciple and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus and what does follow me even mean and, and how do I grow as a disciple and all that. And our next study that we'll do in a couple of weeks will be, okay, what is the kingdom of God? And so what is it that if he's Lord, he's the Lord of this kingdom, right? To be the Lord means he's the king and he's the king of his kingdom. So what does that kingdom look like? But what I wanted to do with this study is say, okay, let's look at the parable of the sower because I think this parable explains why, well, why we struggle so much with living it out and the application of it. And then why I think we look at the church, and I'm speaking specifically for the American church, and I know not all of us are from America, but we look at the American church and we go, hey, this doesn't seem to square all the time. With And, and I think this parable speaks strongly into this. So both for our personal lives, both for our churches. I know some of you guys have worked at the, at the local church with me and and we, and we get frustrated with things we see. And I'm like, well, okay. But I think the parable of the sower helps put some of that in context. As well as the biblical context of, you know, why did Jesus tell this parable? Which is one of the questions that we asked. And why did Mark tell the parable, tell of Jesus telling this parable? So we want to kind of answer those. All right, so the larger context, we look back to chapter three in the gospel of Mark, was that they accused him, Jesus, of being possessed by the devil. We know how you do these things which is interesting in and of itself, by the way, because it's an acknowledgement that, that he does miracles. It's an acknowledgement that he is something unique and special, and we can't explain it away. So what we'll do is we'll say, okay, we can explain it away because you work by, in cahoots with the devil. And Jesus' response is, I had to bind the devil and bind the strong man just to do the work that I'm doing. Uh, and of course, the work that the devil does is to blind the minds of the unbelievers. Then he tells a parable then at the beginning of three, and this more, more in chapter three, but at the beginning of four, he tells a parable. Uh, it's the parable of, of what we call the parable of the sower. And I think the parable of the sower is directly related to the dialogue in chapter three of you do these things by the power of the devil. Anybody remember or anybody think of something in, in the parable of the sower that tells us that this definitely connects to something that happened in, in chapter three, specifically with them accusing Jesus of, of being possessed by the devil. All right, let's keep going. I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave it out there. And let's keep going. And then if, oh, I think that, is that what it is? Well, okay, I won't answer it now. All right, the parable of the sower is an agricultural parable about a man who sows seeds. Um, anybody remember, what's the seed represent? The, we looked at the passage in Isaiah. The seed represents the, the word. word of God. It represents the word of God, uh, that Jesus is sowing the words and the words being proclaimed. Now we do know that it also has this representation of Christ himself, who is himself the word. So there's a kind of an overlap there between the word of God and Christ as the word of God. And the seed falls on four soils. The first, the roadside. The second is uh, there's thorns. And the third is there's stones. And then the fourth is the good soil, which bears fruit. And the disciples come to Jesus in verse 10 and go, okay, well, great. Uh, explain to us what this means. And that's one of the things about parables is we actually might call them apocalyptic because it has, if you don't have ears to hear, you can't hear it. That's an apocalyptic catchphrase. And it's, it's parabolic language that's symbolic and symbolism that's signifying something greater that's going on. And it has to do with, the reason why I call it apocalyptic also is because it's kingdom language. And, and we'll see the parables that follow of the kingdom of God is like. So the parables are illustrating what the kingdom of God is like since the kingdom of God is, is, is what we might call the sign of the end times, uh, the incursion of the end times, 
then it's apocalyptic in that sense also because it's the breaking in of God into his creation to bring about the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises, even if it's only the beginning of the fulfillment of all of those things. Jesus then goes on and explains the meaning of the parable. And we didn't look at it in detail, but the meaning of it was, well, the first seed was the seed sown upon the roadside. And he says, the birds snatch it away and it doesn't go into the soil at all. And he says, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear it immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which was sown in them. Now, what was, what do you think Jesus was getting at? Mind you, he's saying this privately to the disciples. What does that refer to? Who upon whom was the seed upon the roadside where the birds snatched it away representing? Or who could he be talking about? The Pharisees? Yeah, the Pharisees is kind of the easy go-to. In the gospel markets, the scribes more, more specifically. But yeah, the religious leaders, if we wanted to say it that way, which are Pharisees and scribes. And scribes may or may not have been Pharisees themselves. A, a scribe is not a, a religious party or a political party. So scribes could have been Pharisees. Scribes could have been Sadducees. Kind of gave away the answer to my question that left hanging, right? What's the, what's, what's the answer? To, what's the connection between the parable of the sower and the comment in chapter three? Uh, you do these things by the power of the devil. That's how you do these miracles, say they. And Jesus' response is, Actually, you're the one that's been deceived by the devil. But he tells that in the form of a parable, and they didn't catch it. And it was the parable of the sower says, actually, those of you who are accusing me of working in cahoots with the devil, you can't even listen to what I have to say, because Satan snatches it away before it even goes into your, into your heart. So who is influenced by the devil? Or working with the devil, you, because the devil has, see what I'm saying? The interpretation of the parable and the question, of course, well, why did he speak in parables? Well, that's the reason why. Because if he comes out and says, well, actually, you guys have been deceived by the devil. Uh, okay, kill him, right? You just can't say that in honor and shame culture to the religious leaders. Somebody want to read 16 through 20, just to refresh ourselves, if, in case you weren't here with us last week or whatever, and if you listen to the podcast, it's been several days. I can. Thank you very much. And in a similar way, these are the ones sown with seed on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and yet they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution occurs because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown with seed among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things enter and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones who are sown with, with seed on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 times as much. So we have three other soils. And I think, even though it only says that of one of them that they receive their word joy, I think the implication is that all three of these soils receive their word with joy. But two of them fall away. One has thorns, and the thorns represent worries of life, the deceitfulness of riches, as my translation says, the desire for other things. I would define that thorns as power, pleasure, uh, comfort, prosperity. The stones, or the rocky places, depending on your translation, represent persecution and affliction. And note what he says, when affliction or persecution arises on account of the word, or because of the word, depending on your translation, in verse 17. In other words, they receive the word with joy, but once persecution arises because of that, because of that word that they receive, oh, I'm out of here. And so to review from last week, I think what Jesus is doing was, he was telling this the parable to the disciples, because they were going to get to this moment after his death, and maybe even between the death and resurrection or between the resurrection and the ascension, where they're going, wait a minute, is this really worth it? What's going on? We thought he was the Messiah. What's, what's happening? Everyone's deserted us. No one else believes. And maybe he wasn't real. And just going to say, hey, I want to explain to you why everybody else is leaving you. And why there's only, why there's only 120 in the upper room in Acts chapter one, when the Holy Spirit descends on the 50, 50 days later. And the reason why there were 5,000 that we fed the multitudes with and it's only 120 now is because once they realized that I really meant take up your cross and follow me, oh, I'm out of here. I think as long as 
Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And that's just a nice thing. I don't know. I really don't know what he means, but it's a nice saying. But he's healed my mother and he's saying all these great things and he's feeding us and he's teaching these really cool things and he's welcoming me and I was an outcast. I'm in. And then three years later, however long later, he, he goes to the cross and dies. Oh, no, no, I'm out of here. And then the third, that's, that's, the, that's the rocky places, the thorns. Oh, you mean I really have to sell my possessions and give them to the poor and follow you or be willing to do that? Or how about the fact that uh, grandma and my Jewish culture are going to disassociate me and disfellowship me from the family because I'm now embracing this Christianity thing and it's looked to be this aberration or, oh, I'm out of here. I didn't know I had to give up all power, pleasure, wealth, comfort, et cetera, and in order to follow Jesus. And again, we've talked about it a little bit. That doesn't mean that everyone has to actually sell all the possess or, or whatever it might be, whatever the Lord's calling you to do. But the, obviously the story of the rich man uh, fits in here. The third, fourth soil was the good soil. And what we mentioned last week again was don't think of the good soil as though it has no stones and it has no thorns. The point of the parable actually is that the good soil actually bore fruit despite the thorns and despite the stones. You have no possible way that a first century person in, in Judea and Samaria and Galilee would ever have conceived of a good soil that didn't have stones because they, they're just everywhere. The point of that is, is the good soil bore fruit despite those things uh, because of those things. And yet they still remain faithful to Christ. So I think Mark is telling this story. So why did Jesus tell the parable? He, he, he was explaining to his disciples, hey, look, you're going to get to this crisis moment. Why wonder why everybody deserted me? And then you're going to remember this parable and you're going to go, oh, because the, they were thorns. Or they, they received the word with joy, but they didn't, it didn't sink deeply enough because they weren't willing to risk suffering for the gospel. Or they weren't willing to risk their comforts and security and power and pleasure for the gospel. Okay. And remember Jesus, the disciples, even uh, Peter goes, hey, we left everything for you. And she's like, yeah, you did. And, and you're going to receive in this life and in the life of the, and in the age to come uh, a hundredfold for that. Now, why did Mark tell the parable? I think Mark is telling the parable. And I think I alluded to this last week, so I'll just review. I think Mark is telling the parable because as the gospel goes out to the Roman world, the Roman world's going, hey, so, okay, so this Jesus guy comes. He fulfills all these Old Testament scriptures that some Jewish prophets were all talking about. And he dies by Roman crucifixion. And you want me to follow him. And, oh, and by the way, even his own people don't follow him. Why do the Jewish people not follow him? Why, why, why do the Jewish people hand him over to be crucified to, to the Romans? To do? Oh, this parable explains it. Why are so few people believing this? Why are so few people following this? I think this parable explains that that's going on. Now, I didn't get in this last week, but I think I, I alluded to this. I also think, and I said this before, that this explains the New Testament. Why do the people in Corinth give Paul the troubles that they had? Because the people in Corinth that were giving Paul troubles were leading men in the city, wealthy and prominent and powerful men, and the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified. Remember, Paul brings 1 Corinthians up. 1 Corinthians 1, he says, we preach Christ crucified. That's chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Look, I'm not going to walk away from this. What we are preaching is Jesus Christ crucified. And I realize that that's a stumbling block for some, and that's a hindrance for others. And you can't get over this. But we're not compromising this gospel. And so, if yeah, you go out and tell your Roman friends about that, or your Greek friends about that or whatever, and they laugh at you. I'm not going to walk away from that. That's the gospel we preach. And then in Corinth, that, hey, Paul, you know, you don't speak as eloquently as these famous orators in the, in the Greek world. And they tell the great stories. And, and why don't you do what they do? And Paul's like, look, I could, I could give these great sermons if you want and have like really nice clothes on when I do it and, and sound really well and skilled, have PowerPoint presentation and everything else. But the reality is what I'm preaching is Jesus Christ crucified. So the gospel is not something to be like braggadocious about. So why would I, why would I, why would I receive money and, and acclaim and do all the things that they're doing? I'm, I'm, 
I'm called to preach the gospel. Yeah, but Paul, you're doing it. And, and then you're working as a leather worker. Just let us pay you because I'll let, you're working as a craftsman, a, 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 someone who works with their hands. That's shameful, Paul. And, and we're Roman elite people. And we just need a, we didn't a possible we can be proud of. And what, why? Because, because they don't want to be the, the thorns. The, the, the thorns are choking away what they're, and you can go through, I think, every letter of the New Testament and go, why were these giving, uh, people giving Paul trouble or Peter trouble? Or, and I also think it explains the contemporary church. Now, let's stop on that one and, hold, and, and kind of work our way through the rest of, the, of, of this chapter briefly, and then we'll kind of bring, I want to hear from you, and then I'll, I'll bring my thoughts into it as well. And, all right, let's continue on. So we, we continued on by, by noting that verse 21, we noted this last week, it's got, it's indented, it's a, it's a paragraph break in my Bible, and it says, and he was saying to them. But the fact that Mark's only, you know, it's black letters, if you have a red letter Bible where the words of Jesus are in red letters, this is in black letters, and he was saying to them. So that's Mark inserts that. But, and he was saying to them, clearly, continues what was just being spoken. So even though this is kind of a new parable, if you want to call it that, this new parable is a continuation of the previous one. And what was he saying? A lamp is coming. And we talked about that last week, that the translation should be a lamp is coming. And I have that on your notes. And the lamp is Jesus. And the point of that was, he says, I'm coming not to be hidden, uh, but to be put on the lampstand. And I think that, and I said this last week, so I'll review again. What I think is important about that is, is Jesus saying, hey, look, guys, I am not coming to be hidden. I am coming to be made known. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to make me known. And if you're going to make me known, that's going to bring stones and that's going to bring thorns. Are you in or are you not in? Because if you're just here for the, the mass feedings, if you're just here for the miracles and sometimes the freak show, or maybe you like when I denounce the Pharisees because you think that's really cool. Uh, if, if that's, or I tell great stories. I'm sorry, I'm here to tell you that I am here to be proclaimed and to be made known. And that's going to cause and bring about stones and thorns. And that's why I think that the lamp is coming not to be hidden relates to what was previous. Now we know it relates to what was previous also because he uses the word here or, or verse 23. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's exactly what verse nine says. At the end of the parable, it's of the sower, and, and Mark 4, verse 9, he ends the parable saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And so he reiterates that. So we know that the parable of, in verse 21 about the lamp is connected. And then, of course, uh, he says in verse 24, take care what you listen to. And the word listen is actually the word, this hear word that uh, abounds throughout, throughout this parable when we looked at that last week. Now, let's go on to verse 26. And we didn't discuss these last week. So, so unless, unless anyone has a comment or a question, Let's look at 26 through 29 and the parable of the seed. 26, 29? Uh, 26 through 29. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, the parable of growing seed, uh, NRSV. He also said, the kingdom of God is as if someone should scatter seed on the ground and, and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself, first the stalk, then the head, then the full grain of the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with a sickle because the harvest has come. Okay. So again, one of our questions that we want to ask of things like this is why did Jesus tell this parable? And then we ask, why did Mark tell us about Jesus telling this parable? So it was Mark's objective for his readers. But before we can ask that question, we have to go, well, what was Jesus's objective? And that Mark thought was so important that I should tell my readers. First thing to note is that this parable is related to the previous parables, right? What, what are some connections between this parable and the parable of the sower? The scattering of seed. Yeah, seed. Right? Yeah, the clear the allusion the to word. seed. I mean, the whole point of the parable of the sower was about a man sows seeds. And the parable of the seed now is, look, a man sows, it's like seeds sown upon the soil. There's no question that this parable is connected. And, and the fact that it begins with, and he was saying, and my translation, tells us again, okay, the and he was saying is, I'm, st I'm still building on what, what was previous there. The thing that's in included in this parable is the fact that it's about the kingdom of God. No, he explicitly says, the kingdom of God is like, and we didn't have kingdom of God 
the phrase wasn't used in the previous parables. So now we know, oh, the parable of the sower is actually about the building of God's kingdom, which of course is what we'll study in some depth. But the question I asked in the notes then was, well, how does the kingdom of God come? His, one of his points seems to be, I want to tell you about the nature of the way in which the kingdom of God comes. And how does this parable tell us? I mean, look, look at it carefully, because I think it answers the question if you kind of look at it carefully. Sure. Read the passage again. All right, I'll go ahead and read. So the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil, goes to bed at night, and gets up by day. And the seed sprouts up and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. When the crop permits, he's, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Why did Jesus tell the parable? I think it answers the question as to how the kingdom of God comes. So what's that answer? Now, by the way, he never interprets this one for us. The disciples don't go to him. Hey, Jesus, what does it mean? And then Mark tells us what Jesus answers that because they probably did, but we don't know the answer to that. So, which means we're supposed to know enough from the text already to have an answer for us. Well, ahead, Bill. Is it the seeds planted. Okay. By whom? Well, by the planter. And who is that? <laughs> That's Jesus. God, maybe. Okay. God, maybe. Very good. Bill, were you going to add something? No, I'm just going to say that the spreading of the, the seed is spreading. Uh, the, reason the, the way the kingdom comes is by spreading of the word, which is the seed. Okay, very good. All right, sure. All right, very good. You're, you're kind of reading ahead, by the way. You, you, so, you, you've had a good teacher in the past. Oh, no. <laughs> just kidding. I'm All looking right. for one, though. You're looking for one. All right, how long are you going to say? I was just wondering whether it has anything to do with the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I think, sure. We're certainly going to read other parts of the New Testament into this, right? So, yeah, so the, the sower is who? Now, Bill's answer is correct also, right? That it's, that it's us, it's, it's the church, but not in this parable, right? That's kind of, we're deriving that for like two more steps, which Jesus doesn't go to here. Who's the sower? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. God. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, God, right? There you go. And how does the seed grow? And the answer is, well, yeah, mysteriously, he'll, the Holy Spirit. There's a couple now, of things. That, there's a couple of things here that are real intriguing to me, though. Okay, and we, just got, we just got done talking about the light, and seeds don't really grow without light. And then he says, "In the earth, and nobody knows, but yet he created it all. He breathed life into everything. Right. So it's a combination of him. It's a combination of the creation. It's a combination of the Holy Spirit. It's a combination of all these factors coming together to, yes. to mature that seed. Yes. In fact, if you draw what if you draw theology from one passage, you might err going in one direction too far. If you don't bring another passage, in, right? In other words, the reality is, is it's through divine and human effort. Yeah, amen. Obviously, this parable is emphasizing the divine element because right. the man doesn't even know how it grows. He goes to bed and he gets up and, and it grows. Right, right, right. But we know it grows because well, he 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 tilled the soil. He probably put fertilizer in there. It rained. The sun came out. Right? All, the, all, all those factors go into it. Uh, he might have pulled the weeds. He might have put a watchtower to make sure the animals didn't get into it. There are all these factors that an agricultural metaphor is implying that we, being non-agricultural people for the most part, might not think about. But they're all there. And so, yeah, absolutely. The point of it is, I think we would use the word grace right here, right? We'd say it's grace. Amen. That is God transforming the heart and the lives of people. And, but we know that grace doesn't work independent of human will. And this is the problem with the, you know, the predestination, free will, Calvinist, Armenian debates. It's like, really stop, get over this here, people. You're, you're all right. Oversimplifying it. If you, if you side with one side over and against another, because it's not over and against another, it's both. Certainly. Yeah. All right. Let's favor God's divine sovereignty. But if we divine, if we favor divine sovereignty so strongly that we undermine human freedom and you, then we, uh, oh, it's off my lap. I have no responsibility. And, but we all know that, no, we all have a responsibility to grow as followers of Jesus Christ every single day. And that we don't get to get off the hook by like, it's not my fault. I didn't know the seed just grew and I, I had nothing to do with it. 
and and it and it grew weeds and it and it and it grew over there at the bar and I just got drunk and that's not no we, we realize that's that's not rational or, re, or reasonable and that's certainly not what the parable is saying. Yeah, all right. So the first point of it is this is the work of God. The kingdom of God is like what? It's God working in His creation to bring about what he intended and what did he intend a garden and we know obviously the garden is god's dwelling amongst us but we, we're using agricultural metaphors there okay so let's go on one more parable now we're not done verse 30 through 32 if somebody wants to read that mark 4 verse 30 through 32 and he said what can we compare the kingdom of god or what parable shall we use for it it is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. That when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, so now this one's loaded with some, some innuendos and some assumptions that, that you might not notice. Now, let me address one of those common questions that arises here. The numeric, what translation were you reading at, uh, Andrew? The ESV. Okay. Oh, really? That's interesting. Okay. The NIV, I'm sorry, the New American Standard says that the mustard seed is the, is the smallest of all the garden seeds. And so, which is true because, by the way, the mustard seed is not the smallest seed of, of, all, of all seeds in the world. And people go, oh, see, the Bible's wrong. It says the mustard seed is the smallest in the world, but it's not. It's like, well, they would never have thought that. They knew the context, what's going on. Of, all, of the garden plants that you grow, the mustard seed is the smallest one. And in that culture context, uh, a part of the world, it was the smallest seed. So that that's, takes care of that. Notice, of course, now back to our, our, our context. This parable is related to the previous ones. Anybody know how, how is this parable? We know it's a continuation of the same thought because... The seeds. See, there you go, John. Yeah, you got that answer down, by the way, John, right? Yeah, the yeah. seed. There you go. Ding, 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 the, the seed, yeah. Um, very good. Uh, like mysterious growth. It's like, okay. you know, it's like, it's not in relationship to work, but in necessarily. Okay, yeah, very good. Yeah, somehow it mysteriously grows, and the, and the previous parable uh, of the seed was this mysterious growth of the seed. Oh, very good. And th I think there's at least one other thing. There's, there seems to be an expansiveness to me. Mm -hmm. Like it starts small, but then it gets really big. Oh, the nature of the kingdom. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Save that one because it answers one of the questions that we're going to ask in just a second. Uh, very good. Uh, I think that the, the fact that we know that this parable relates to what we just read is also indicated by the fact that it begins with talking about the kingdom of God. The previous parable says the kingdom of God's like, and this one says the kingdom of God's like. So, and of course, the reference to seed, here we go. We're still on the same topic. Now, I don't know if your Bible does this, but verse 32 in the New American Standard has the end of the verse in all caps, that the birds of the air can nest in its shade. And the New American Standard does that whenever they believe that the verse is a direct quotation from something in the Old Testament. And, it, and direct quotation doesn't have to be word for word verbatim but they believe that this is a, a more than just an illusion, but directly referencing a previous in, uh, verse. And the verse is actually Daniel chapter four. And the birds, by the way, in Daniel four are the Gentiles. So what this parable is actually saying is, so the previous parable was, hey, look, this, this seed's gonna go. The, the seed is, I'm a lamp and I'm not coming to be hidden. And I'm also a seed and it's gonna grow whether you like it or not. That's kind of in your face of the Pharisees things. And, and, and it's obviously grace and it's this divine work of God's king. It's a kingdom thing that's happening and the kingdom is the work of God. Boom, right? We know that it doesn't mean it's independent of our human actions. And now it starts small and it grows really large. And the large part means it's going to include the Gentiles. Now, again, he has to say that in a parable. Because the religious leaders were like, no, the kingdom of God is for us, the Jewish people. And it's against the imperialistic Roman world. And it's anti-imperialism. And by the way, the kingdom of God is kind of anti-imperial, right? After all, the kingdom of God begins with the crucifixion of Jesus was the epitome of, of imperialism imposing its will upon, upon the kingdom of God. But their mindset was, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. And Jesus answers, no, 
The bad guy is the devil. That's one of the themes in the gospel of Mark. The bad guy is actually the devil. And he's the one that I have to bind. And he's the one that I have to cast out. And, and he's the one that causes the storms and the sea. So I have to rebuke the wind in the next, very next passage, by the way, he rebukes the wind in chapter four. And the word for rebuke is the same word used for casting the demons out, rebuking the demons. So it's the devil that's the opponent or the enemy of God's people and the, and the enemy of, of, of all humanity. And therefore, the Roman centurion can go, hey, this man was the son of God at the end of the Gospel of Mark. But that's not going to go over well. Remember, and we'll do this in, the next class, in our next study. And we'll look at Luke 4. He goes in, in a Nazareth in Luke 4 and says, hey, this, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, oh, this is awesome. This is great news. Jesus is the Messiah. And then at the end of the verse, end of the passage, they want to run him off the hill. And they try to run him off. Like, well, what happened? Why did it go from the fact that they're like receiving him with joy in Luke 4, like verse 20, 22, and then by verse 27 or whatever it might be, they want to run him off the hill. Because in the middle there, he says, oh, and by the way, the kingdom of God is coming for the Gentiles too. And we'll explain that passage. And the, oh, no, no, you're, you're a heretic. You're blasphemous. This, this, you're out of here. Gentiles also, or the nations also, are our enemies. Now, so why, how does that fit into why Jesus would tell the parable? Why would Jesus tell this, the, the parable of the mustard seed? Because he wants to explain to his disciples. That they're going to need to go out and sow and, and bring bring the seed to the people. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be afraid to bring this to the Gentiles because they're in it. They're in also, right? Th this is going to include them. Oh, because remember the gent, the, the disciples were Jewish and they didn't think that this was, remember, interesting note. If you read the book of Acts, Acts one, verse eight, go ye therefore to all nations from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and make me known. It's not until chapter nine that they start doing that. The first seven plus chapters, they're still in Jerusalem and Judea. They haven't gone anywhere yet. It's not until Paul, at the time known as Saul, begins to persecute the Christians that they, that they flee. In other words, God's like, you guys won't go. I know what I'll do. I'll make you go. The persecution is actually what forces them to go. And even then, Peter's up in Joppa, and he has a vision on the roof, of, and, and like, oh, and he has a vision of a man in Caesarea, I can't go, I, no, I can't go to him. What are you talking, Peter, that's the whole point, the parable of the, of the mustard seed. Yeah, the Gentiles are included. They knew this from the beginning, and it was reminded them in, in Acts chapter 1, they still didn't do it. So this parable just, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we might want to go to them, too. You know, there, there's a threat here. Yes. Uh, my parents probably did it to me, but I have to tell my kids at least 50 times before <laughs> something sinks in. So I'm just saying it's funny how, how common yeah. this is. <laughs> Especially when that's something that sinks in is something that you don't want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Right? When it's something that you don't want to hear. And we all know as parents, some of the, some of the times like they're just going to have to learn the hard way. Hard right? Way. That old phrase that we say. We're, we're going to tell our kids, Kunikar, it's going to happen to you too, your little girls. They're going to do something. You're going to go, mom and I told you, why didn't you listen to us? Because they're just going to have to learn the hard way. Sometimes we just don't listen. And we don't, and especially when we don't want to listen, no matter what is said. So this parable of Jews was to explain to the disciples, yeah, it's going to include the Gentiles. And why does Mark tell it? Because he's writing to the Gentiles. Ah, it's going to include you too. Now, I, no, yeah, go ahead, please, Helen. So um, I just remember a, a teaching that you did many, many years ago, and it was, it was, the, geez, it was um, when it was getting closer to his time for crucifixion. Hmm. And so he, he'd been teaching his followers. And then I remember you saying, and then, and this, this has always struck me, oh, oh, the Greeks are here or the Gentiles are yes, here. And he yeah. didn't want to have any, he's like, that's up for them, up for you guys to deal with. I'm not here to deal with them. I'm here to talk to you. And I thought that that was really interesting. Anthony alluded to that a few weeks ago. Exactly. Yeah. John 12, the story very, very briefly for the rest of you is uh, that Helen's recalling is the Greeks come to see Jesus. And then Jesus says, unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you're like, 
What does that have to do with anything, Jesus? Well, he began by saying the hour has come, which the entire the gospel of John, the hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. But as soon as the Greeks come to Jesus, he says, the hour has come. And then he says, and unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, remains by itself alone. Like, what does that have to do with it? Because the Gentiles are coming to see me. And now that's your ministry, your mission. Mm-hmm. I'm sending you out to them. So now my job is to die, bring redemption and restoration, new creation, bring the power of the Holy Spirit so that you can then be empowered to go out to the nations and, and, and do that task. Exactly. Well, how fascinating that he's alluding to that seed again. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. And that's why, so again, at the beginning of all this, I said, there's really one parable in the gospel of Mark and, and the ministry part of Jesus through the first 11 chapters. You can say that these are four different parables, but you see why I think this is kind of one. St- I don't think he's done when he tells the parable of the sower. I think the parable of the lamp, the parable of the, of the seed, and the parable of the mustard seed are just expansions on this one parable. So yeah, you can call them one A, B, C, D if you want. You can call them one, two, three, four if you want. It doesn't matter. They're all related. They're all interconnected. And it's this is the gospel and the kingdom has come. So the devil's been bound, but some of you have are still bound by the devil and you can't receive the word. Some of you are going to receive it with joy, but it's not going to last because of suffering and persecution or because of comforts and, and whatever and wealth and, and power. And the rest of you, you need to know this. It's going to include suffering. It's going to come at a cost. But if you endure, and he's going to say this in Mark 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. If you endure, it's going to bear 30, 60, 100 fold. And how that's going to happen? Well, you're not even going to know. Right, which means, hey, sometimes you're preaching the gospel to people and they hear it, and sometimes they don't, because it's not our job to open the hearts and the minds. The Spirit does that. Our job is just to do the proclaiming mm-hmm. in a righteous, godly way, in a way that that's our character reflects our message and all that good stuff. And that's and it just grows. And that, that's the grace part of the story. That's the power of God part of the story. And then was it grow? Well, it starts small. Because when they're in the upper room and there's only 120 of them, oh yeah, it was going to start small. We were fooled because we had 5,000 last week that, that ate lunch with us. And now we realize, oh, it starts small. And then it becomes this massive thing. And mind you, it doesn't become a massive thing until after Rome falls, right? I mean, hundreds of years later, maybe millennia later. Mm-hmm. Any questions or comments now? Can I share a nugget here? Please. Of course. Yeah, and this is fascinating. And, and I, I've always loved this, but Barna does a lot of primarily Christian studies. Mm-hmm. And they did a study on people after the age of 24 who came to faith in Christ. And they wanted to know how many exposures to Christians or people that shared with them or loved on them or however you want to view it, uh, poured into them in that moment. And on average, it was 21 points of contact before they came to faith in Christ. Wow. I love what you said earlier, because I've kind of used that analogy in my own life to try and find peace with that tension sometimes, is that somebody tills the soil, somebody <laughs> fertilizes it, somebody pulls the weeds, you know, whoever's doing the process along the way, you don't even know what you're doing. It's the spirit doing it in and through you, hopefully. But it was fascinating to me how the number was 21 that the people actually came to faith in. So and when I came to faith in Jesus, but yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So now let's look at the uh, look at my questions in the notes, and this is going to be much more provocative. And, and of course, we want to always temper a conversation like this with first with humility. There, but for the grace of God, go I. The fact that we know Jesus is not because of the of our greatness, but because of His grace. He saved us. Titus two thirteen says, not because of righteous things we have done but because of his mercy. So we have to always remind ourselves of that. Secondly, remind ourselves of, uh, there's a famous Orthodox prayer I've referred to a number of times. Lord Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And it just reminds us, A, that he's the Lord, and B, that I'm still a sinner too. Because when I want to look in judgment on somebody else or condemnation of somebody else, I'm first reminded that, oh yeah, I'm also a sinner. And it just puts us in a posture of humility when we enter into those engagements and into those dialogues. First question I ask on the notes then is, what if there are no rocky places or thorns? What does that mean for the state of the church in an area of the world, let's say, or a a a community when there are no thorns or there are no rocky places? Or give me your thoughts. 
Well, I'm kind of the opinion that you think Karuna Carr is, because but I I I see rocks and thorns everywhere as well. I mean, well, good. I mean, All right, good. I, I'm mean, glad, I'm, I, I mean, think that's life, a good thing. Life is a series of challenges. Okay, excellent. Um, and Satan is everywhere as well. And, All right. Uh, however, maybe your point is that some people have a as, as a as a church as a group of people there are there going to be all sorts of yes. trials and not trials um but without that stimulation from thorns or rocks or whatever it may be the growth is stunted because those those things um as a person they encourage you to either grow or give up one or the other well, the, and for me, I, I kind of see it like this, you know, we, with no rocky places or thorns there, you know, there's no free will, you know, this, hmm. we have no freedom to choose um, between the, you know, just kind of make the, those choices for ourselves. Otherwise, it would just be given to us and here you guys are on earth and you live and now you can um, return to me. But it wasn't a part of the plan, you know. You know, we were sinners. You make choices, and and you know, we want you. He wants us to follow him, and that that, that we have that choice to do that or not to do that. Yeah, I think your your most recent uh, Pathos article hits it right on the head. Uh, I mean, it addresses this directly, but as well in conjunction that we have factions in the church that preach a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And, right. and there are no rocks. There are, there's nothing in there to challenge you. It's very self-serving. And it, I personally think it has nothing to do with the gospel, but unfortunately it misleads a lot of people. Yeah. My blog came out yesterday and part two of that will come out next Tuesday. I guess I don't know if I'm getting it, but um, I guess that what comes up for me is the importance of comparison that you can, if you've got, rocks and thorns and I mean if it's all if everything was just wonderful all the time I don't think you get it but rocks and thorns help you realize the comparison that this is there's something better hmm. but if you're always in something better then you don't realize you're in something better so it's kind of like um I guess it's assault right hmm. does that make any sense or yeah. I think it's also easy like if everything is going really well i might start forgetting to realize i need god i think you're answering this question showing if i can say this to you your spiritual maturity i think the answers you're giving are because most of you are fairly mature spiritually which is great caught me off guard a little bit but as soon as you guys started talking like as soon as john started talking I'm like well oh that, i guess that's true kind of obvious but I'm thinking more globally in terms of American Christendom. And I don't see things the same way because I'm thinking more globally. I, I get exactly where you're going at. So what I'm getting at is the fact that Christians in America, and I'm being very generic. So it, don't think I'm speaking specifically to you. I'm speaking globally about all Christians in America tend to be very prosperous. And yet they give very little. We know that in the average church, 80% of the people do, or 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and 20% of the people give 80% of the money. We know that, I don't think that, uh, that Christians think well enough, and I'm being very global, I'm being very generic, so not, I'm not talking about any of you in, in particular at all, about the fact that we are a global body and a global entity, and that there are Christians that are brothers and sisters in India and in China in Uganda, where we're all brothers and sisters in one body. And as a result of that, we are to care for one another as our first and primary reference, because we are one family and, and a family cares for itself. And yet we see needs of the church globally and we don't attend to them very well. Sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. I think we're good at praying for them. And I think sometimes we're good at going, oh, so, so our 16-year-old young girl in our congregation wants to go on a mission trip over there. Great, I'll help. I'll give them money so they can go. Uh, okay, we're good at that. But we're not good at getting our hands dirty. 
when it comes to saying, you know, that foreign policy of our government is actually bringing harm on our brothers and sisters over here. I think we need to speak up to that in a righteous way. What we do is we speak up to foreign policy when it comes to, or political policy when it comes to, yeah, you know, if you do that, it's gonna be uncomfortable for me. I'm, I'm not gonna be comfortable. I, I think it really, I think our comfort dictates our political opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the gospel is intensely political. I just don't think it's political in the way American Christians go about being doing politics. I think we do things because we don't want to be persecuted. And we avoid, you know, for us, persecution is they took the Ten Commandments out of the schools. It's like they took the Ten Commandments out of the schools because they're not Christians. What do you think they did? What do you expect them to do? Then they're pagans. And that's what they, they don't, they shouldn't be there. Well, they took prayer out. Well, okay. You can still pray. They're just not sanctioned. You know, they're just not making everybody do it. They didn't say you can't pray because that's persecution for us. Yet we go to other parts of the, of the world, right? And obviously, Karuna Car's on the call. And, and these guys are, you know, this is real. Uh, the church in China. If you listen to the podcast that we did a couple of and I did, it went live a couple of weeks ago, I think. Uh, we had Tony Kim on and he was talking about the underground church and, uh, and all that. It's like, you know, Tony Kim takes life insurance out so that when he goes to these parts of the world, he's like, hey, we talk to our kids and say, I might not come back. And he's got friends in Washington, D.C. say, you know, I might not, I'm going to parts of the country, parts of the world, where this is illegal. You know, and uh, I was talking to Tony about this before we even had him on the podcast and why I said, hey, hey I need to have you on the podcast because he's got contacts in Afghanistan. And right when the United States pulled out of Afghanistan and, and the Taliban took over within a couple of days, and I don't really care about the politics of whether that's the right move or wrong move. I'm just speaking about the church there. And he said, the church contacted him and said, we have to go dark because the Taliban's going to come to our home. They know who we are and they're going to search our phone. If we have any American contacts in our phone, we're killed. So sorry. And so I, I you know, you asked Tony, like, Hey, how's the church in Afghanistan doing? Like, I have no idea if they're dead or alive. There's no way of knowing, you know, and obviously some of them are alive and they've gone underground. And when this happens, by the way, the church actually grows in those, you know, you, all, you don't know how that works. The church actually grows in Afghanistan and places like that. Tony mentioned that the fastest growing church in the, in the world, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is Tony's statistics, is in, is in Iran, which is intensely persecuted. But we don't think about that. And we don't think about them because that I think, and I'm speaking about American content, American Christian Christians, because that makes us uncomfortable. That means I have to get out of my comfort zone and go, no, what do I, what do we do about this? I think there's a massive problem. Uh, and I think that the church in America is watered down with people who are the other two soil. And we just don't know. And, I, and I'm not saying this, and I don't want to say this in an arrogant sense. I want to say this because I think some of you that work in church leadership. So I think that some of you that have been on uh, church boards or whatever, you get frustrated because of the what Christians are doing to you. And my answer is, that's what happens when it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian. And some of them, and some of them are genuine Christians. I, I'm not denying that at all, but some of them aren't. And their, their selfishness hasn't gone away. And some of them are Christians, but they've never been challenged to truly follow Jesus. And as soon as you do that, they're going to throw darts at you. Just look at Paul's life. They don't want that call. Oh, I'm, you know, that carry your cross thing is really neat and cool. And I have one on my, in, in my house. It's really, uh, and I, but I'm not going to literally do that for myself. I think that challenge is something that I don't do very well either. I don't know that any of us do. I think we've got to wrestle with this. And I think the church in America is watered down to the point at which I think Jesus is going to take their lampstand away. That's, that, that's my thought. And you might not agree with that. Uh, I think the church in America is so watered down that there's only a remnant that's actually saved. I would go that far. I was going to say, Rob, are you uncomfortable? Was <laughs> that? that make you uncomfortable at being persecuted if you kept that on your, on your podcast? <sighs> no, I'm not uncomfortable being persecuted. I think what I worry about too much, and maybe you're pointing out a, a flaw, I worry too much about people turning, tuning me off because they get so, that because they don't want to hear what I have to say. Oh. And I want to have a prophetic voice, but I also want to be heard. And sometimes I compromise too much on that. 
I try to make to build bridges too much sometimes. And, I, and that makes me actually overly, maybe too cautious sometimes about being too much of a, of a prophetic voice. Remind me of, because I've been reading Jeremiah. Him, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's yeah. saying, you're going to be destroyed, you know, and yeah, yeah. it's only going to be a remnant, you know. So. so anecdote here. I started doing a study of Jeremiah because he was like the one major prophet that I hadn't really done much studying right after COVID hit. And so COVID had a natural impression that came upon us just because you're, you're sheltered, you're not socialized and things of that nature. Whatever, right? And then you compound that with a study of Jeremiah. And I'm like, this dude's life is horrible. If you don't know the story, Jeremiah prophesies for 40 years and nobody listens to him because nothing he says is true. Because Jeremiah is like, you guys are all, all falling away. And Jeremiah is prophesying at the beginning of his reign was during the kingship of Josiah. If you know about Josiah, he's one of the righteous kings and the whole nation followed him because he was the king. And Jeremiah's like, yeah, you're only following him because he's the king. And he's, nothing he said made any sense. And it took 40 years before anything began to be fulfilled. And they put him in prison and they, you know, his family disowned him. I mean, it's like, oh, this guy's life is, who wants to be a prophetic voice? You want to do a Bible study in Jeremiah? Good luck. I'm not leading it. Look so ahead, Rob, help me, help me understand, because I, mm -hmm. what's the difference between a prophetic voice and there will be no more prophesying? I mean, I'm getting confused. I thought that all the prophets had already. Oh, um, okay. So you're thinking of the word prophet in the context of an Old Testament prophet. Mm -hmm. And in the New Testament, the word prophet is what an apostle is. Okay. So the apostle, meaning those who are bringing revelation from God that is canonized, that it's in scripture. Not everything Jeremiah said is in scripture. Not everything Isaiah said is in scripture. Not everything Paul said is in scripture. But those are prophetic voices at the level of what we now in the New Testament call apostle. A prophet, generic, in, the, in a New Testament sense, in a biblical sense, but in a New Testament sense, is one who speaks the word of God authoritatively to their generation. That doesn't mean that I'm saying everything I said is actually divinely correct and inspired by God and should be canonized next to the book of Romans. But it's a prophetic voice saying, hey, look, I'm seeing scripture and I'm seeing this and it doesn't match and you need to know it doesn't match. That's a prophetic voice. Now, it could be a good voice too, but I, I, I see the church in America. Let, let, let me put it this way. I'm just gonna be real provocative for you. The book that I was started to write that I didn't ever finish, that's actually becoming my blog posts. I initially started writing it thinking, I'm going to title this, Come Out of For My People, which is a quote from Revelation 18.4, and her is the harlot Babylon. Because I think the American church has gone to bed with the harlot Babylon. And the harlot Babylon is what? It's Rome. It's Read Revelation 18. Treasures and jewels and, and gold and, and ivory plates and it's wealth and power and prosperity and everything that comes with it. That's what the heart of Babylon is. She has seduced the church. Mm -hmm. And I'm not speaking universally, but I'm speaking, obviously, just in general, I think the American church is in bed with the beast, or at least in bed with the harlot. That's what I think has happened. I, I think it is. I think the American church is allowed to see in church in the book of Revelation 3, that's wealthy, powerful, and prosperous. And obviously, you guys were, were not thinking along those lines because you're thinking in your in your context of the fact that you do suffer, that fact that you do awesome, excellent, wonderful, absolutely kudos. Not denying that that's a reality. Now, when the when Jeremiah spoke and prophesied, or when Isaiah prophesied, and Isaiah is a good example if you remember our study in the book of Isaiah, because Isaiah is like, I'm going to render everybody dull and insensitive, but there's always a, a remnant. There's always that, that holy seed that, that Jesus is picking up on. So there's, there's always a righteous remnant there. The, the prophet Elijah goes, I'm the only one. And like, no, I've kept 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, I thought I was the only one. There's always that righteous remnant. So there, that it's there. But I think that the righteous remnant is not the voice. If you talk to the American, to American culture outside the church, if you talk to the American culture, go, what do you think of Christians? I think most of them are going to give you a negative impression. And that's what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Now, if we were to show them, some of you in the room here on the Zoom call, if we were to show them 
what the church is doing here, what the church is doing there. We go, see, oh, that would be something that they didn't know about. But what they know, the public face of Christendom, that's what I'm speaking of, of American Christendom. Can I read a piece here to kind of back up what you're saying? Sure. I, I think Especially if you're going to support what I'm saying. I'm, I, 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 amen. <laughs> it'll condense everything, and you may like it. I don't know. Let's okay, see. that's fine. Yeah. Uh, many of those who consider themselves prophets today are crying out to the nation to enforce Christian ethics and uphold Christian laws. Yeah, exactly. They are false prophets because this is not what prophets do. Right. Prophets exhort the people of God, not the state or the people in it, to be faithful. Where'd you get that from? <laughs> No, who's, who, where'd you get, the, who's, that's, who's quoted that's that? That's the piece you wrote in Pathios. That's, that's, that's my phone. Oh, there you go. I'm, like, <laughs> you. Uh, I'm totally agreeing. I'm like, okay, yeah, where'd you, oh, I wrote that. You've done that. That's not the first time you've done that to me. I think. Sounds <laughs> so prophetic. I'm like, yeah, I yeah, I totally prophetic. agree. I totally agree. Oh, I wrote that last, yeah, last week. Sorry. Yeah. And I literally, by the way, wrote that last week. Um, you got any more softballs? <laughs> no, yeah. Um, yeah. The church, the prophetic voice is to the church. It, it is. It's, it's prophets speak to the people of God. Jonah is an exception, right? Where he's go to go tell Nineveh. This is what the Lord's going to do. That's the exception. But remember, Jonah's not even speaking to his own nation. He's speaking to another nation there, there also. And, and I know some of you guys have been disillusioned by the church. I know I'm struggling with that also just because my own experiences in the church. So I just want to say, um, I know you talked about the church in America has lost its way. Mm-hmm. But I, and I remember many, many probably 20 years ago now when I was in England talking to my friend who's a pastor in England and he said Church of England's over hmm. yeah, he said that he says I see the writing on the wall it's it's, it's gone. Uh, I see no this is what I see and I hope I'm wrong I pray I'm wrong mm-hmm. and obviously our job is to be different and to be the to be the the righteous remnant whatever that might be I think the American church is going to happen. What's going to happen to it is what happened to Europe. Mm-hmm. I think I've said this to, I said this to pastor Jace and you guys, some of you guys know who Jace is. And he, and he, he didn't reply to me. It was through text messages. And I said, I don't think there's any hope for the American church. It has to die in order to rise. And that doesn't mean that we don't try and we won't keep fighting. And it doesn't mean that we step down from our board positions on the, on the sessions or we stop being pastors. No, no, we keep pushing it up the hill because I think there's still the righteous seed and that righteous remnant. Absolutely. But I think that the American church is dying and needs to die. I hope I'm wrong and I hope it just needs a reformation, but I don't think it needs a reformation. I think it needs a revival and revival means you, you die first. Mm-hmm. Speaking of not thinking globally, what actually happened in Europe that to the church in Europe? Uh, I don't know enough about European history to answer that question. I don't know, Helen, if you want to answer it from a great from a British perspective. So, um, from a British perspective, just fewer and fewer people go to church now. You know, Britain's become more secular. Not many people really proclaim that they're Christian. Uh, you know, attendance, population, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's dwindling. And churches in Europe, they're great historical buildings. They are, right? they're museums. Beautiful. You go you in. You actually literally pay a fee to go in and see it's mm-hmm. not an operating church any longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's very rarely that they hold services in there. Yeah. 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 I see in America, my experience is that you have a generation that, that, that has grown up. They're, they're not just growing up, they've already grown up. And there are kids now, of course, coming in that look and go, it didn't work for you. Why should it work for me? Mm. I see the hypocrisy in you guys. I see the, the, the hatred that you spew towards whatever community that might be, or that community over there, or that community over there. Um, it didn't work for you. Why should I think it'll, it'll work for me? And I can also add to that, Rob. I, um, when I, was interviewing schools to do my master's in counseling psychology. I went up to CIAS up in San Francisco to find out about East West psychology. Mm. And um, what's CIAS? <clears throat> CIAS. It's, oh, CIAS. It's, yeah, it's a school up in San Francisco. Okay, okay. And, and so talk about East West psychology, and they were talking about the um, religion. So we're talking about Eastern religions. And I sat in a room full of people. I said, well, I'm a Christian. So where in this learning do you teach about Christianity? Mm. And he said, we don't. 
We don't because the people that generally come here have been traumatized and abused by Christianity. So that's yeah. the last thing they want to hear about. So they're into Buddhism. They'll do Sufism. I mean, everything else, mm. but not. And it hurt. That hurt my heart to hear yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And so that's where I think Christianity has gone in America. It's abusive. It's hypocritical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's and not always represented to what it really is, which is it's love. I mean, it's it, it really is love. And so for me, I get so frustrated. Yeah, and always be reminded that that is the devil who's mm-hmm. doing that, who's who's mm-hmm. infiltrated us. That's the enemy. It's not that brother down the street or that sister down the street who goes to whatever church it might be. That's not the enemy. It's the devil mm-hmm. that's trying to bring division in our congregation or in our community or deception to me. He's the deceiver. So he causes me to believe this so that I can have more comfort. I, and I, th- I think this parable just provides that paradigm. Uh, if I believe this, I can have comfort. If I believe that, I don't have to be persecuted if I believe it. I think that's the paradigm that we look through. And whenever we compromise those things, it's the devil who's bringing that deception in. But I can tell you also, by the way, one of the things I do with Determined Truth is I do a lot of mentoring of pastors and others. And I can tell you that a lot of them have been abused as well. And there's a lot of abuse in, of pastors and, and people in, in pastoral ministry. It, it's just, it's rampant. It's not, and I know a lot of Christians that are not, you know, it's interesting because COVID gave them a reason to not go to church because they, of course they couldn't. And I think a lot of people aren't going back for whatever reasons, but I think a lot of people that have been so wounded have now gotten out of church for a long enough going, I don't know that I can go back yet. I'm not ready to go back. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's wow. That, that, and I get it, but it's like, that's why we have to figure out how to, we can be different and an alternative community. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.